0: Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Let's read again those verses and ask the Lord for his blessing as we seek to hear his word this morning. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. It is without error and it is profitable for all things. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified." Amen. Father, again, we ask that you would bless the proclamation and the hearing of your word, that you would prepare the rich tilled soil in the hearts of each one so that your word might go forth by your power, your effort, your energy, and that, Father, you would reap a harvest that there would be fruit abounding for you, Lord, in this congregation and in every gospel-preaching church this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you are just joining us this morning in our study of Romans 8, we are reaching the climax uh, of this chapter in these verses 28 through 30, But as we've been seeing, this has been a a, a gradual climb of the mountain, so to speak, as we've considered what it is that the Lord has done for us in our salvation. This book of Romans is principally about the doctrine, the teaching, the understanding of justification by faith in Jesus Christ, and all by the grace of God. As we've gotten into chapters 5, 6, and 7, we've been learning about the the treasures that belong to the children of God who are justified by faith alone in the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we have come now to chapter 8 to see the particular work of the third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit, and His ministry in the hearts of each one who is in Christ. And what we have seen briefly is that the Spirit of God has rescued us from the dominating power of sin and death. And He has brought us into union and fellowship with the triune God that we would no longer walk according to our old way of life, that is, according to the flesh where sin is said to dwell in us, but that we would walk in newness of life, that we would be um, walking as a pattern, more and more each day in the Spirit. And that is true for every child of God who is in Christ. The Spirit has taken up residence in our hearts. He has transformed us from within so that we now now have a new inner man, though we are still embodied in bodies of flesh and death. The Spirit of God has given us His mind, so that we now are able to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, things above. We now have an appreciation for and a love for God's law. We previously were not subject to the law of God because in our minds we were at enmity with God. We were literally enemies of God by wicked works in our minds. But God, through the Spirit, by giving us this new mind, has caused us to delight in the law of God, to want to walk in His way, and no longer to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin which we previously lived in. The Spirit of God has uh, made us sons of God. He has bestowed upon us full privileges as sons who have not only been born again of the Spirit, but also adopted into the family of God. We all now who are in Christ are the sons of God, and we have all the privileges that pertain to sonship. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ of literally all things. And the Spirit has given us a new instinct in our hearts where we cry out to our God as Father. We now call Him Father, and that is the new instinct of the heart given us by the Spirit. We now look forward to this coming glory that is to be revealed to us and in us. That is the revealing of the sons of God. That final day of redemption when Jesus Christ returns from heaven with his saints and with his angels in order to call us to himself finally and for all time. That we would be glorified with his very glory. And it is this anticipation that every true child of God has we are looking to that great day of glory. And as we consider all of what the Lord has done and is doing for us by His Spirit, we are reminded that all of it is undergirded by the work of God. All of this is centered in the purpose of God and in the active ministry of the Holy Spirit who continually prays for us according to the will of God. Because as we saw, we don't know how to pray for what we ought to pray in and of ourselves. The Spirit of God is constantly praying for us. And as we will see as we continue through Romans chapter 8, Jesus Christ also intercedes for us as a second high priest, constantly praying for his people, holding them fast as we were singing this morning to ensure that every son of God arrives at the final destination, which is glory, glory. So, last week we had spent some time looking at the rest of verse 28, This, what is arguably one of the highest mountain peaks of all of Scripture, certainly one of the high mountain peaks in Romans chapter 8, and we were looking at the calling of God. The effectual calling of God. And we started to look at the first couple of links in what we call, what theologians call, the great chain or the golden chain of salvation, foreknowledge, and predestination. And as I was preparing for the message this week, I was thinking originally that we were going to cover verses 29 and 30 today, but as I was studying and meditating with the Lord on this, he put it on my heart that we really ought to take some more time with verse 29 this week because as I'm seeing these two verses, 29 and 30, I think they can be outlined in the following way. Verse 29 deals with the purpose of God. We want to make sure we are clear in our minds what the purpose of God is. Verse 30, or really the second half of verse 29 into verse 30, or I should put them together. Verse 29 and 30, referring to the golden chain, these five cardinal truths, really describe the certainty of the purpose of God. The certainty of the purpose. So I'd like for us today to look at the purpose of God and to fill this out a little bit more with the, the brushstrokes that we are applying here that we're bringing to bear from the Word of God. And then next week, consider the certainty of that purpose. And it's important we see both and that we're clear in our minds as to both. As I say, this is very much like climbing, scaling, very tall, wonderful, majestic mountains. And when we come to the top of a, a glorious mountain peak, Do we want to take just a brief glance around and say, okay, I've seen it, and then head back down the hill? Or do we want to take our time and gaze and take in the vistas that the Lord has provided us in the panorama of His Word? That is the conviction of my heart this morning and and what the Lord has laid on my heart to share with you all. So let's take a look at verse 28, 29, 29 and, and spend our time there today. Verse 28 reads, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And what is His purpose? Well, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is the purpose of god and i want to just call that out initially and then we'll flesh it out as we go the the grand purpose of god from eternity is that we the people of god would be conformed to the image of his son and that he the son might be the firstborn among many brethren That is the grand purpose, and and it's given in two parts. So let's take a look at these parts. He starts by saying, for whom he foreknew. And as you will recall if you were here last week or listened last week, this word for foreknowledge that Paul uses here is not the word that merely means understanding or to have awareness of facts and information. God, of course, does know all things, and he knows all things from the beginning, looking From beginning to end, because He is Alpha and Omega, the first and last letter in the Greek alphabet, meaning He spans all of it. And He is omniscient. He knows all things. So there is a doctrine of God's prescience, His prescience, which is that He knows all things, He sees all things even before they happen. But this word for foreknowledge that Paul is bringing to bear here is the same word that is used in the Old Testament of Adam when he knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. That's the kind of knowledge that Paul is talking about here. It is an intimate, personal knowledge of love that God has for His own. Amos chapter 3, verse 2 is directed to the children of Israel. And the Lord says this through the prophet, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Doesn't God know about every family on the earth? What does he mean that he is singling out Israel as the one family that he knows of all the families of the earth, but that he is describing his special love that he has placed on his people. They are his, they have been elected by him. And this love is described as an eternal love. It's a foreknowing, a fore meaning beforehand, before anything was created. Jeremiah speaks of this love in chapter 31 of his book, verse 3. He says, The Lord has appeared to me of old, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. I have loved you with an everlasting love. This love of God, this foreknowledge of God, in other words, had no beginning. It always was. That's difficult for us to understand. I would say impossible for us to understand. But for God, this is His love in His mind that He is disclosing to us. And because He sets His love on His people, the Scripture describes this love as a love of delight, that the Lord delights in His own. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 15. Deuteronomy 10, verse 15, the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Moses, in writing Deuteronomy, uses this word delighted. It's the Hebrew word chashak, And it means to love. It means to set one's love upon. And so he is saying the Lord has set his love only in your fathers. Notice, who is it that he delights in or has delighted in? He is very exclusive with his recipients of this love. He says, he delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. In other words, the fathers of Israel and the descendants of Israel are the one people in all of history that God has delighted in. Now, we need to ask a question because there are some who separate the church from Israel and say this word is only to the nation of Israel and does not apply to the Church, But my question to you would be, did God later add the church to the objects of his love? Or does this everlasting love of God encompass all of God's people of all time? You only have I delighted in of all the families of the earth. That's why Paul is using the same word, the same language when he uses foreknowledge in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, and he's addressing the saints in Rome. And by extension, he's addressing us, every believer in Jesus Christ. God delights in his people. They are the ones above every family on the earth that he has set his love upon. And you may ask, what is it that Israel, or what is it that we have done to earn this love of God? And if you ever want a a good, strong antidote to pride, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and read verse 7. He says, the Lord did not set his love on you, speaking to Israel, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you, And because he would keep the oath which he swore to his fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Moses is very clear. The Lord has loved his people simply because he's loved his people. And because he would keep his oath, he's made a promise And this promise, yes, was made to all the fathers. But it was a promise that he first made to himself in eternity. And then extended to the fathers and to their descendants, even to us today, who are in Messiah. And this promise is that he will love us and his love is eternal. It will never end. It will never fluctuate based on our performance. That is so important to get into our souls The love of God is steadfast and always full because we are in Christ. Paul says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And just as a quick recap here, he uses the word horizon in English, orizo in Greek, which means he marked out a people with a distinction. Just as he distinguishes sky from land with a horizon... So he has marked out or elected or chosen a people for himself. And what is implied in the word predestined is that this people were elected for a purpose. That they were elected to, a, to arrive at a destination. And that destination he describes as that we should be conformed to the image of his son. That's the destination that he marked us out for before we existed, before anything existed. Conformed is the word for morph in the Greek, simorphos, to have shape and to take shape together with, is literally what this word means. In other words, he has marked us out to be jointly formed to the image of Christ. That we should take his icon, is the word in Greek, his image. It would be like a, a blacksmith who superheats his metal and then pours it into a mold as liquid and then waits for it to cool and to take the shape of that particular mold. It could also be described for those of you who are in construction or who know about pouring concrete. If you have wet concrete and you pour it into a form, that concrete sets up and takes the shape of the form or the mold that you pour it into. That's the idea here. And so what Paul is saying is Jesus Christ is this mold. He's the image. He's the archetype, the, the pattern that all of us are poured into. And when we are poured into him as we have been by the grace of our God, you begin to resemble him more and more. You begin to take on his shape, his form. And that process really lasts a whole lifetime for all of us. How do you know that you've been poured into his mold this morning? How do you know that you are one who is conforming to the image of Christ? Well, you begin to look like him in the way that you live. What is his image? What is his mold? holiness. If you've been poured into Christ, your life will reflect holiness. The desire of your heart will be for what is right, for what the Lord determines is right, and a hatred of sin. And you will move more and more in that direction in your walk of life. If you've been poured into his mold, you will love and uphold righteousness by your life. You will seek to do what is right, you will love the truth you will be merciful you will be a peacemaker you will be long suffering and patient in trials just go through the list of the beatitudes in matthew chapter 5 you will become like christ rejoicing in the lord even in the most difficult circumstances Paul really previewed this idea of being poured into a mold in Romans chapter 6. It was said in slightly different terms, though. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 17, and I I love that as we progress through the letter, we can come back and see how Paul was foreshadowing certain things that he now makes explicitly clear for us later in the text. This is one such example. In Romans 6.17, Paul said, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. That is the same idea. You were delivered to a form of doctrine. You were poured into a mold of God's truth. So that you are now taking that shape. In other words, you are becoming truthful people. People who love the truth and who proclaim God's truth. You see, the mold that we are poured into, that Paul was describing here in Romans 6, is a mold of doctrine, the Word of God. But really, if we remember that the eternal Word of God is the Lord Jesus Christ, then we can understand something of what Paul is talking about in chapter 8 when he says that we are being conformed to the image of Christ through his word. Through his word, the Lord is making us more and more like his son. You know, when people used to ask Dr. R.C. Sproul about advice for the will of God in their lives, they would come to him with questions like, you know, where should I live? I'm considering a a change of life, which particular city am I being called to, or a particular job I'm considering, how do I know to take A versus B, or how do I know which person to marry? All these questions that people often ask to uh, really understand or try to understand the will of God for their lives. And Dr. Sproul's answer was so uh, crisp and poignant and really comes back to this truth we're considering right now in Romans 8. He said, The one place, the one destination to which the Lord calls each of you is not to a particular city or to a particular job or to even a particular person, but to holiness. That's the destination that he calls every one of us to. In other words, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, of the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the grand purpose of God. This is the grand purpose of God from eternity, This is what salvation is all about. If you want to think about salvation in your mind, wrap it in these terms. It's that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, to look like him. And that is the ultimate good that he talked about in Romans 8.28. That's the ultimate good that God has in view, for which he is causing all things to synergize, to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, you might ask in your mind why it is that we need to be conformed to the image of Christ. I mean, weren't we all created in the image of God? And Christ is the Son of God, so why is it that we need to be conformed to that image? It seems perhaps unnecessary, perhaps redundant. What we have to remember, though, is that man was formed originally in the image of God before the fall, when he was in a state of sinless perfection. He had not sinned. And his task was to be the image-bearer of God throughout the earth, He was to have dominion over the entire earth. He was to be God's vice regent or his representative king in the earth, governing and ruling as God does, with equity, with righteousness, with truth. And all things were put under man's feet. You may have heard that in Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8 speaks of. The purpose of man, the purpose of man in his original condition as he was created. Psalm chapter 8, if you'll turn there with me or just listen, listen to how David puts this. He says in verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in the earth. God accorded granted, gave a special privilege to man as the pinnacle of his creation, the one who alone of all created beings bears his image and was to bear it in a godly dominion over the earth that God had made for him, for his benefit, for his glory. But is it true that all things are still under man's feet? Is man still in his condition today, since the fall, ruling over all things? Hebrews chapter 2 gives us important insight about this, and really the whole of Scripture speaks to this, but I just want to call your attention to Hebrews chapter 2, our corporate reading this morning, because the author to the Hebrews quotes from Psalm chapter 8, starting in verse 6, but look at verse 5. For he, this is Hebrews 2, verse 5, for he has not, this is God, he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. In other words, under their authority. Well, whose authority has he put it under? Keep reading. But one testified in a certain place, saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, and that refers to man, mankind. He, God, left nothing that is not put under him. Now notice this statement. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. In other words, Psalm 8 is not yet fulfilled for mankind. Why? Because sin now rules and reigns over man. Apart from Christ, you are in Adam. And in him, you are governed and ruled by sin and the consequences of sin, which is death. All things are not under your feet anymore if you're outside of Christ. But now look at verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. He submitted to death, death on the cross for us. And God has exalted him highly. He has honored him and crowned him with glory. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 8. He is the perfect man under whom all things are. All things are in subjection to Jesus. Death has no claim on him. Sin never had any claim on him. And for all of us who are in Christ this morning... Psalm 8 is being fulfilled in us as we are being conformed to the image of Christ, the perfect man, the perfect man. That image will not be completed. We won't look fully like the Lord Jesus Christ until the last day when he himself transforms these bodies of our humiliation, these lowly bodies, the bodies of our flesh, to be fashioned like his glorious body. So, why do we need to be conformed to the image of Christ? Because after the fall, all things are not under the feet of man anymore. Sin and death are reigning over every person born in the world. Yes, after the fall, man still retains something of that image of God in him. And that is why there is inherent dignity and value in every human life, born or unborn. That is why there is inherent dignity. But that image has been shattered, marred very badly, brothers and sisters, by sin. And we more clearly bear the image of the fallen Adam and of Satan than we do of God since the fall. But Jesus, as the perfect man, is restoring us. He is causing us to become more like himself that we would fulfill this wonderful Psalm chapter 8 promise of all mankind having all things under his feet once again. We are being conformed to his image. And how is it that he conforms us to the image of the Son of God? Well, Paul says that God predestined that we would be conformed. In other words, this is not a work that we do for ourselves. This is a work that is being done for us, upon us, a work of God that He is ultimately doing in us. This is what we call the, the process of sanctification. This is a separation in our life practice from sin more and more that the Lord Himself is doing in us. And, and the question is, well, what does Scripture have to say about how we are being conformed to the image of Christ? How is this actually happening? Well, start with 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 Paul says, excuse me, Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.30, but of him that is of God are you in Christ Jesus. God puts you in Christ. Who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that's ultimate redemption or glorification. All of that is in Christ and he is becoming or has been made those things for us. In other words, Jesus Christ is our sanctification. God is making us more like His Son by His Son. Jesus, in His high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 17, said this to the Father, Sanctify them by Your truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. By the word, he means God's word, the scriptures. But he also means the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. He is the pattern. See, it is the word of God that perfects us, that conforms us to the image of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says this, Him we preach, referring to Jesus Christ, the Lord warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. What is the one and only true source of wisdom? It is the Word of God. It is the Scriptures. And God is using these Scriptures, all wisdom that concern the Lord Jesus Christ to warn us and to teach us about Him, why? That He may perfect us in Jesus Christ. That's just another way of saying that He would conform us to the image of Christ. Perfect us, to make us more like His Son. And then in John chapter 16, in the Upper Room Discourse, the Lord Jesus says this concerning the Spirit of God, which was to be given at Pentecost. However, when He, the Spirit of Truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own, meaning His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. Now, the original context in which that was written was it was written to the apostles. They would be the ones upon whom the Holy Spirit would come, and the Spirit would lead them to write Scripture, He would lead them to recall everything that Jesus had said that he wanted them to record. And they would be enabled to do that. But by extension, this is spoken to every disciple of Jesus Christ. He will lead all of us into his truth by his spirit. And when he says, guide you into all truth, that doesn't just mean that you'll learn more facts in your head about who Jesus is. But that he will guide you into the one who is all truth. To become more like him. To take shape into his mold. See, these are all the positive, I would say, or additive ways that God is causing us to fill the mold. He is sanctifying us through his Son, by his word, by his Spirit. But the Lord also works negatively. I use that in air quotes in this sense. It's actually a a big positive. But in a subtractive way. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. He has an additive way of working and a subtractive way of working when he's molding us. He's shaping us. The subtracting way or subtractive way is as a master sculptor, he chisels us. He refines us. He removes that which is impure, our sin. The Lord Uses what's called chastening in the Scriptures as this chisel, this tool to refine his people. In Hebrews chapter 12, we have the a very clear example of the chastening of God, and he says in chapter 12, verse 10. Um, Verse 10, for they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. That's a reference to our human fathers in verse 9 who corrected us. They for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, that is the Lord, chastens us for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. There's just another way of saying conformed to the image of Christ. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, exercised by it. The word is gymnasium. So, the Lord is chastening us. He is purging us of our sin. And He does that in a few different ways. He is able to chasten us, directly when we sin in response to our sin in order to convict us of sin and to cause us to repent. But he also knows how to draw the sin out of our hearts in order to show us how much sin we really have still in us. He knows how to draw out our sin and expose the idols of our hearts that perhaps we weren't aware of, that are hiding, but he shows us those things when he removes our comforts. Things like money, jobs, health, maybe even family members. Things that we trust in, things that we just assume are always going to be there. Things that we don't proactively give thanks to the Lord for, we take them for granted. Malachi describes the Lord as a refiner's fire one who purifies his people so that they will be able to offer sacrifices to him in righteousness. That's the purpose of his sanctification. The purpose of his chastening is so that we would offer the right sacrifices to God. And what are those sacrifices? What is it that he is chiefly interested in from us? Well, a broken and a contrite heart, as David says in Psalm 51, a broken and a contrite heart over our sin, thanksgiving and praise in all circumstances of life. He wants us to give our entire bodies to Him. That means all of you, all of your faculties, not just your things, stuff you have, but you. He wants you. He wants your time. He wants your energy. He wants your whole heart engaged for Him. Not just on Sunday morning, not just on a Wednesday night or in a a men's or a ladies' study during the week, but every single day, even in the most trivial routine part of your day, in all that you do, to acknowledge Him as Lord and to give Him thanks. That is all this work of conforming us to the image of Christ, that we would love Him, that we would fear Him, reverence Him, that we would serve him, not just with our surplus, but with our all. And in every role that he's given us, as a member of this body, as a member of the universal body of Christ, the church, as a member of your families, as a member of um, perhaps a company, as an employer or an employee, in every relationship, your friends, all of it. So, how does the Lord conform us? Well, he does it through his son, by his word by His Spirit, and by means of chastening. He is actively forming us to be more and more like His Son. And someone might say, well, is there nothing that we are to do? I mean, this just sounds like God is doing everything and we kind of sit back and don't do anything. Well, there, there is something we are to do. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 captures it well. Paul says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That is very important. All of us with unveiled face, that's a reference to the unbelieving Jews who have a veil still on their faces and on their hearts with regard to who Messiah is. They don't recognize that Jesus has been revealed as Lord. The Lord and Savior, the Messiah. And Paul says, All of us who recognize him as Lord and Savior, for you the veil's been taken off. And you're now looking at the Lord. You're able to see him by faith. And you are, he uses the word beholding. In fact, this is what we are to do behold him as in a mirror. That word means to not just glance at from time to time, but to stare at, to muse on, to look considerately at, just like a person would look at himself or herself with attention in a mirror. Give that time and attention at looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, beholding His glory, when you recognize Jesus as Lord, you are glorifying God. You're beholding the glory of God. And as you do this, as you, this is something we do. We are to behold Him, to spend time meditating on Him and looking at Him. What happens is the Spirit of God progressively transforms us from one degree of glory to another to become like Him. It's an amazing truth. As you look at him, you will become more like him. Just as Moses, when he was in the presence of the Lord on the mountain, and he came down, his face shone. It was brilliant, and the people couldn't look at him because of the brilliance of his face. What was that? That was the glory of God reflecting off of the face of Moses because he was in the presence of the Lord. And so it is with each of us as we are in his presence more and more. Guess what happens? The glory of God is shining through you. It doesn't reflect off of your face and fade away as it did with Moses under the Old Covenant. This glory emanates from the heart, from within where the Spirit is. A glory that will never fade. It actually will strengthen and intensify. Look at Colossians chapter 3 with me. Colossians chapter 3. Speaking of things that we are to Do as our responsibility, if you will, for being conformed, recognizing that ultimately the Lord is the one doing this work, but there is a responsibility, a part that we have in this. Look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15. He says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And you say, well, what is the peace of God? And so often as you're reading the scripture, especially from Hebrew writers, Hebrew writers like Paul use parallelism. It's all over the scripture in order to clarify, in order to enhance, in order to repeat a point so that we can understand it better. He does that here in verse 15 and 16. He talks about the peace of God ruling in your hearts. And then in verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That is how you let the peace of God rule in your hearts. How? By saturating yourself with the word of God. Read the word. Spend time meditating on the word. It is his peace which he has left us. He's bequeathed it to us. It's his last will and testament that he gave us from the upper room discourse. My peace I leave with you. What is that peace? It is found in his word. So let that word dwell in you richly, and the peace of God will rule in your hearts. In other words, he will govern you more and more. You will be conformed more and more to his Form. That's a progressive change. And what's the result? What's the result of looking at him intently, letting his word dwell in us? Verse 17 And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does that mean, to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus? But this, do all that is in conformity with his image. Imitate him. Imitate him. And if you have the Spirit of God, you are able. To the unbeliever, that's impossible. But to the Christian, that is the precise work that the Lord is doing in our hearts. So, let the Word of God dwell in your heart. As as you do that, he will exert greater influence and control over your life and that will enable you to do all in your life, even the most simple things, mundane things, in the name of the Lord Jesus which brings him honor. Look to Christ and the triune God will conform you to the image of his Son more and more and then at the last day, know this, he will finally conform you to look just like Christ. That's God's purpose. That's his purpose. But Paul wants us to know back in Romans 8 that there is still more to his purpose. In fact, you could say that this grand purpose of conformity to the image of his Son is eclipsed by yet a more glorious purpose. And what is that? It is that he, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn, as I mentioned last time, is a word that does not mean first in time. Jesus was not the firstborn baby who ever came to this world. Firstborn, prototokos, in the Greek means that which is first in rank. In other words, the preeminent one, the one who is the leader. He is the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, the purpose of God, Paul is saying, is that Jesus Christ would be honored as the preeminent one among many brethren. That all brethren, all his brethren, would be patterned after him. That's the primary purpose of God in all things. I'm going to repeat that. This is the primary purpose of God in all things. That is a big statement, isn't it? If you want to summarize everything in terms of the purpose of God, <laughs> here it is. One, that you should be conformed to the image of Christ. And two, that Jesus Christ would be the preeminent one among many brethren. And really, to stack rank those, the second is first. That's the primary purpose of God, that Jesus would be honored ab- among all his people, all his brethren. And secondly, that you would be transformed to his image, conformed to his image. That's what God predestined us to be. Now, I want to illustrate this for you in a couple of ways, just so this is clear and solidified in our thinking. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37 is the account of Joseph and his dreams of greatness. And you remember the response of his brothers, right? (laughs) Genesis 37, let's pick up together at verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There they were, binding sheaves in the field. Then, behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. (laughs) And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream which you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in his mind. Joseph's brothers hated him because they were jealous of him. They didn't want him to be the preeminent brother over them. They couldn't stand bowing to their brother, and they couldn't stand that their father loved him above all of them and gifted him with this coat of many colors. But brothers and sisters, why is this story, this account here, but to point us to the greater Joseph, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the beloved of the Father, the Son of His love. And as His brothers, all of us, by grace and by rebirth and by adoption, are not jealous of Him. We worship Him. We want him to be the preeminent one, and we adore him, and celebrate him, and bow to him willingly. This is the, the greater Joseph that is worshipped in Revelation chapter seven. This was our call or corporate reading this morning. I'm sorry, our call to worship this morning. Revelation chapter seven verses 9 through 12. But before we do that, let me just give you the account of Revelation chapter 5. These two accounts are so wonderful. Revelation chapter 5, um, verse 11. Then I looked, John speaking, the Apostle John, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders who represent God's people of all time, Old Testament and New Testament, they fall down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. We worship the preeminent one because he has been ordained and declared to be the preeminent one among many brethren. Look at Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. Similar scene. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They're all worshiping the Lamb. They're worshiping the greater Joseph. He is the firstborn among many brethren. Here's another way of thinking about this truth. Ephesians chapter 5 in terms of a husband and a bride. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's instruction to husbands in verse 25 is, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. What will make the bride a glorious church? That she will be sinless, perfectly holy one day. Just like her husband, fully conformed to his image, And how does that happen? Well, it happens progressively by the washing of the water by the word, Paul says. As we look to him in his word, he washes us, unbeknownst to ourselves. What is actually happening there is he is conforming us. Brothers and sisters, God the Father has selected a bride for his son. Not because she was lovely in and of herself, she wasn't, but only because he has set his love upon her. He has loved her with an everlasting love and determined beforehand, marked her out for this purpose, this destination, that she would be conformed to the image of his Son, who is all-lovely. So God is preparing a bride for his Son even now, he's preparing her to, to give her, to present her to him at the wedding supper of the Lamb at the last day. How? Without wrinkle or spot or any such thing. Without sin. Totally sanctified and like Christ. You, you can see how this is, this is so wonderful. This is all about a wedding that God himself has planned All of human history we're talking about is about a wedding that is to take place where the bride will be conformed to and fully united with God's Son. And all of us as the bride corporately will worship Him and praise Him and enjoy our husband forever. The ultimate purpose of salvation is not about us, but it's for the glory of God in His Son. And yet, I have to say this, as much as this is about the honor of Jesus Christ, and we don't back down from that position, it's important we recognize also that there is a special honor that is accorded, given to the bride, to the church. Why? That Christ should choose to have her. That that Christ would choose to have many brethren be his bride. This is his will. He's the one who chose us. He's the one who predestined us for this purpose. I want to close with you in Hebrews chapter 2 again, back to our reading for our corporate reading today. <clears throat> and I just want you to see this, this idea of the brethren and the Lord's view of his brethren. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Brethren. Now, some people when you back up to verse 9 they read the word everyone there and they derive a universal salvation from that verse look at what it says but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone that sounds like universalism that Christ died for all for every person but you have to follow his thread through the text. Who are these everyone? He defines it for us in verse 10. He says, For it was fitting for him, that is Christ, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. In other words, he's the preeminent one in creation. He created all things. Everything is for him. And he is the one that everything is for. It was fitting for him in bringing many sons to glory, Many sons. That's the everyone he's talking about. To make the captain of their salvation. He's talking about those who are being saved. Perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. This is the same group. Those who are being saved. Those who are being sanctified. Those who are being brought to glory. These are those of whom he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Brethren, and you remember when Jesus' family, his blood brothers and his mother came to him while he was teaching the multitudes, they called for him. They sent for him, and the people said, hey, your, your brothers and your mother are calling for you. And he said, who are my brothers and who is my mother? And his answer was, but he that does the will of my Father in heaven. He is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus Christ has radically redefined this relationship of brethren. Who are the brothers? Are they blood brothers in the kingdom of God? Or is he describing those who are spiritual brothers who are being saved by himself? Why is it that Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren? Because we are all of one. Because we are all of God. We have been brought into union with him. We are born of God. We were his choice. We were eternally foreknown. He's not ashamed of us because he's the one who marked us out in the first place. He came willingly and laid down his life for us and not for the world. That's why he's not ashamed to call us brethren, And this is why the author to the Hebrews in verse 16 says, For he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. That's the brethren. You have I loved above all the families of the earth. You have I known of all the families of the earth. Your fathers and their descendants I have loved. Brothers and sisters, if you have faith in Jesus Christ this morning, You are the brethren. You are the bride of Christ. You are the one group of people that he has loved from eternity and will never stop loving. And to you, it is promised that Jesus Christ will bring you to glory. He is bringing many sons to glory. That means there's not a possibility that you will be lost along the way. Every one of you will make it to glory because he will ensure it. And that's what we're going to talk about next time, Lord willing. We know the purpose of God in salvation is that all of us be conformed to the image of his Son in order that Christ would be first preeminent among all his many brethren. Praise the Lord. Next week we want to look at the certainty of that purpose, the absolute certainty which is the heart of the golden chain. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for opening heaven to us and for sending your word down and your spirit that we might know the truth of God, that we might have a glimpse into the glory of God as you have revealed it in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you've made Jesus the preeminent one, the, the first of all of us who is to be worshiped and praised. And Father, thank you that we don't have jealousy in our hearts toward him, but we have love for him. You've given us a new heart to worship him, to love the Lord with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Father, we confess our sin. How often we don't love you with all our heart. But Lord, you've given us that desire, and you are transforming us from within that we would desire you, that we would hunger and thirst for your word and for righteousness. And Father, as we gaze at you, you are wonderfully forming your son as your own reflection in us so that you are pleased in us. Father, what a, 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 a boon this is to us, a shot in the arm, Lord, to recognize that you have done it all for us. And you are bringing us to glory. And you are even giving us the desire to be conformed to Christ. Father, thank you that this is not ultimately up to us. If it were, Lord, we would fall away, every one of us. But because of your work, we all are sheep in your pasture, your flock that you are directing in one direction, and that is heavenward. And that is ultimately to the new heaven and new earth where we will dwell forever in righteousness. Lord, thank you. Thank you for all the brothers and sisters here this morning. The work of your hands, begotten of God, born from above, seated with Christ even now. Encourage us this week, Lord, as we go back to our schedules, that we would keep our eyes on you and remember these truths, and that you would continually draw our hearts to yourself. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.